Welcome to Citizens Insight, the new interview series of the Australian Citizens Party. I'm Glenn Isherwood, and joining me today is Sam Hansen from Sydney. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for being on. Sam, uh, the subject today is a national bank to save Australia. And you've just spent the last six months putting together a documentary called The Battle for the Bank, Australia's Struggle for Monetary Sovereignty. So this documentary is available on YouTube. I encourage every uh, watcher to go to the link at the bottom of the screen to watch it. It's a big project. It's a big compilation of very, very critical material. Uh, and so, Sam, I want to ask you some questions. We can go through some of the elements of this documentary today. Uh, first of all, though, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, what, may, what were some of the reasons that led you to decide to embark upon this massive uh, documentary, uh, putting it together? Well, well thanks, Glenn. Thank, massive thanks for having me on, on the show. Um, to, to me, I think monetary policy is probably one of the most important subjects that doesn't receive any attention in the mainstream media, very little significant political agitation or push behind anything. And so to me, the, the film itself was, it was sort of a, a mechanism for getting the ideas into the public consciousness, getting this, this part of Australian history that isn't really talked about, you know, often, basically into the public domain. And so there's, pl there's plenty of stuff on the, uh, the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, but I, I didn't really think there was really much on the Reserve Bank of Australia. And what a lot of people don't actually really understand is that the Reserve Bank of Australia that we have today actually used to be the Commonwealth Bank of Australia uh, back in the 1950s, 1960s. And then the, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia that we have today is nothing like the original Commonwealth Bank of Australia that we had under Sir Denison Miller and Ben Shifley and John Curtin. So to me, the film was basically about discovering this Australian history and putting it all together into a... Um, into a, to, to a medium which uh, the public could, could understand. It, it took me a while, but I, I'm glad it's, uh, it's finally out there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's incredibly significant because one thing that a lot of young people today have grown up in is, in a, is within an Australia where all banks are private. The Commonwealth Bank today is a private institution on the stock exchange with all the other private banks, but it wasn't always the case. I remember in grade one, having the Dolomite book and, you know, the, the savings bank, but then it disappeared and we've been in a very different economic system to what, say, our parents and their grandparents lived through and, and experienced. Um, and it's, you know, we're, we're at a point now where there's a massive economic turmoil from so many, ang from so many things. So let's, why don't we go back to the beginning? Um, in the documentary, you start by talking about the control of money and how this has been a fight between private interests and private banks versus that of governments or states, nation states. Um, and uh, we encountered uh, a major, major banking crisis in Australia in the 1890s. So uh, why don't we start there? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the, well the, the documentary itself is huge. It goes all the way back to the, uh, the founding of the First Fleet and the monetary system from there onwards. But basically, ever since the beginning, uh, Australians, the Australian system of currency wasn't really owned by Australia. At the beginning, we were using pound sterling or whatever, whatever currency came on the, uh, the colony ships. 
But it wasn't until 1911 that the Australian pound was developed. So until then, we were basically using all sorts of different, different forms of uh, different systems of currency. But it wasn't Australian currency until 1910. And so <laughs> I talk extensively in the film about the, uh, the 1890 financial crisis, which was, was basically it was an absolute financial Armageddon. Because in the 1830s, what had occurred was that the banks had introduced these new form of loans called uh, sheet-based collateral loans, where farmers were actually able to gain credit from the banks by using their flocks of sheep as collateral. But what this in turn did was basically lead to a, a huge inflow of credit basically into the, uh, the land, into the pastoral markets and the land, in, in land prices. So it started causing all these spikes and uh, basically the business cycle on, on steroids started occurring in the 1830s onwards. And then in 1890s, it just really went absolutely insane. And probably the worst financial crisis in Australian history occurred in the 1890s, mm. where of the 63 banks that called themselves institutions, only 10 of those closed down. Wow, just 10. And it was yeah. in this environment of financial disaster that the idea of the government should be taking a greater involvement in the banking sector. We shouldn't let this laissez-faire private banking system control. And that's where you get the development of ideas from people such as King O'Malley, really start developing. Mm. I think on, um, on a previous discussion on this uh, with John Adams on Citizens Report, he also highlighted the fact that in that 1890s crash, the, the consequence for, for the people of Australia was massive poverty, homelessness, and uh, as a result, disease. And I think uh, the figure was put out that it cost the lives of 50,000 Victorians at that time. So you can just imagine how much of an impact that had, and I guess on the formation of the early union movement and the Labor Party. Yeah, well, de de definitely. It was, it was actually, it was from within the Labor Party itself that the, the, the real push for involvement in state banking uh, began. You highlight in the documentary, too, uh, one major figure of the time, King O'Malley. Um, and uh, one of the quotes of King O'Malley there was, I am the Alexander Hamilton of Australia. So tell us about Hamilton and tell us about O'Malley. Who were these figures and why should young people today know about them? Yeah, well, O'Malley himself had come over to Australia from America where he had actually been inspired by uh, the Hamiltonian system of economics. And it, like you said, he, he called himself the Hamilton of Australia because he sought to bring in these practices of national banking into Australia. And it was, it was King O'Malley himself. It was the real push within the Labor Party. He ended up forming a faction of, of Labor MPs. He, he later titled the uh, Torpedo Brigade. And basically, they were the ones who pushed through the idea of national banking through the Labor Caucus. They, they are the ones who are able to establish the original Commonwealth Bank of Australia, the, the government-owned bank competing against the interests of the private banks. Mm -hmm. Well, that Torpedo Brigade um, back then with O'Malley is something that we really hope to see it re-emerge today. Uh, and um, uh, I'll jump in here with some of the updates, is that uh, we at the Citizens Party have legislation drawn up for a national bank uh, that uh, we have put on the table uh, and sent to some MPs such as Bob Catter, Senator Malcolm Roberts and Senator Jared Rennick, all of which have stated on the public record in recent months as a result of the economic system situation today, that this is something that has to be done. So I can see a parallel with a cross-party, bipartisan push again for these types of ideas. We have to take that spirit of the torpedo brigade in the early labour movement uh, to heart today. So um, 
The, the banks established, Sam, um, by the, one of the first Labor governments in the entire world. Uh, in, and uh, what is very striking is the way it was started was not like any bank in other countries like the Bank of England or the, uh, in the United States with the Federal Reserve. Tell us what was uniquely different about the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Well, it was first and foremost, it was the first, well, one of the first fully owned government banks. And so its, its interest wasn't generating profits for, for shareholders, rather its, its primary motive was to increase the living standards of the Australian people and to increase the, uh, the development capabilities of Australia. The, 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 the bank legislation itself was, it actually provided that the bank would be run by one man known as the governor. And this was un, unheard of at the time because all the other banks around the world were run by a board of directors. And that was the international standard. But there was fierce debate, but eventually the, the bill was passed with that the, bill, the bank would be run by a governor. And uh, Prime Minister Fisher ended up hiring a man called Denison Miller, who later became Sir Denison Miller, who basically started the bank and basically hired all the officers, built, uh, found the buildings and established the branches and basically built the institution from scratch into the prize institution of the Commonwealth. And it was under Sir Dennis Miller's, Miller's uh, governorship that the bank actually came into existence and became the, the, the Bank of Australia, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, the actual People's Bank. Mm. And uh, I, I talk in the film about how eventually the system gets hijacked. And this is the why I call it the battle for the bank, because it's, it's, the, it's the continual struggle between the people trying to control their own monetary policy versus the, uh, the international system of private bankers who are consistently trying to hijack and subvert this uh, sovereignty over finance. Yeah, yep. Uh, and uh, in World War I, um, under the Denison Miller's uh, leadership, uh, tell us a bit about what the bank did then. Well, the, the, the bank did three things. Most importantly, it, had, uh, it, it, it provided the funding for, for the war. And so pr previously, all, all, most of Australia's debt financing had come from the debt markets in London. And that was hugely expensive. The flotation costs of the loans were uh, massive enough. But what the Commonwealth Bank actually inst instituted the system of war bonds, which provided the Australian finance for the, for the First World War. Uh, secondly, and I, I, this is probably my favourite part of what the Commonwealth Bank did during that time, was due to the international crisis of uh, inter interrupted shipping, all the agricultural industries were facing catastrophic price collapses. So, so Denison Miller's Commonwealth Bank actually set up this system called the agricultural pools, where the, the Commonwealth government was actually able to guarantee the, the prices of many of these agricultural products through financing directly provided by the Commonwealth Bank. And if the Commonwealth Bank hadn't acted in this guaranteed pricing mechanism system, most of the Australian farmers of the First World War would have absolutely collapsed due to these catastrophic uh, collapses in, in the price of their products. So the Commonwealth Bank actually saved the majority of Australia's farmers during the First World War. Mm. And you said there in the doco that um, uh, it also purchased ships to make sure that that product could get to market overseas and support the war effort in Europe. Yeah, yeah, directly finance the purchase of the ships from London. Mm. Well, they, that's, I mean, that kind of uh, price control in, a, in the context of a crisis uh, and a war, um, you know, the question becomes, you know, why can't they do that now? I mean, what is, what is holding them back from doing similar things today? 
Um, but it was definitely uh, controversial, the, uh, what you were um, discussing about it being led by a single governor, uh, Denison Miller. And uh, there was later, um, coming into the period of the Great Depression, uh, a, a, a concerted effort from Britain to uh, destroy the bank and sabotage it. And uh, you talk about uh, Sir Otto Niemeyer and his showdown with Jack Lang. Um, one of the things that uh, stood out to me from this part of the documentary was how uh, it was a, a process of deliberate destruction of the Australian economy. Do you want to say more on that? Yeah, well, the, 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 the main reason I call it the battle for the bank in the documentary is because eventually the bank gets hijacked. So in 19, 1924, the, uh, the Bruce Page government comes to power and Stanley Bruce is as Anglophile as you can guess. And what, what, hap what happens is he ends up going to, he goes to London on this trip to the Imperial Conference for, for, for about three months or more. And then he comes back and immediately he introduces legislation which absolutely kills the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And so what it did was rather than having the, gov the bank run by uh, a governor who, who wasn't that, so Dennis and Miller was one of the most nationalistically inclined bankers we've ever had. Instead, they replaced the system of governor with a, with a system of a board, of board of directors. And these board of directors were all, they were members of the international finance houses and business communities, mm -hmm. basically who became in control of the new system of finance. And as soon, I, I show this in the film, as soon as this new board comes in, they start coming in, the, in this basically sort of a predatory extractionary system of finance. They basically start an, an extortion of the agricultural industry. And, and from there, it extends all the way into the Great Depression. And a lot of, uh, probably the majority of the suffering felt by the Australian people during the Great Depression res primarily stems from the actions of the, uh, the Commonwealth Bank Board and Sir Robert Gibson. And because Australia had a huge foreign debt after the First World War, you know, the Commonwealth Bank didn't provide all of the financing. Australia was in debt to London for, I think it was the equivalent of 96 million pounds for its service in, in, in fighting a, the, the First World War in service of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And that loan, those loan repayments became absolutely crippling to, to the state governments during the, uh, during the Great Depression. And it was, Australia was actually having significant troubles repaying these loan debts. And so the Bank of England decides to send their man, Sir Otto Neymar, to Australia. And uh, Neymar is the epitome of imperial financial control in Australia. And what, what's evident from Neymar's actions is that rather than coming to assist the Australian economy, his purposes were primarily to, to, to direct monetary policy in Australia in the, in the interests of London bondholders and London finance. And so he ends up setting up this institute, well, having a meeting called the Premier's Conference, where he got all the state premiers together and he said, this is the solution to Australia's financial troubles. And basically, Neymar ordered this plan of harsh austerity. He said, no more public works, no, 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 more, no more sinking, oh, no, no more social programs. Everything must either be loan repayments or austerity in, in service so that you can repay these London loans. And, mm. and unfortunately, many of the Australian uh, uh, premiers and politicians agreed with this and uh, went along with this harsh plan of austerity, which is why the effects of the, uh, the Great Depression were so severe. But I, I talk about in the film that not everyone would bow down to the dictates of British finance. And that's where you get heroes such as Jack Lang, who are actually pushing for a, a national independent uh, Australian monetary policy. Because at the time, the Commonwealth Bank Board 
was completely controlled by British finance. It, mm. it was no longer the institution of, of Australian sovereignty that was the Commonwealth Bank under Sir Dennis and Miller. Rather, it had become this institution of British finance to gung-ho with deflation, let's put it that way. Yeah, and the government of the day under Scullin um, and Treasurer Red, uh, Red Ted Theodore had made a request to the bank for this um, increase in the monetary supply to go straight to farmers and to support public works programs to put those unemployed people into work. And, the, and as you show, Sir Robert Gibson, the famous quote, I bloody well won't. So here we have the Commonwealth Bank, a bank owned by the government, appointed by a board of, uh, with a board of directors, refusing a government request, a directive of the elected uh, uh, government of Australia, and that consequently hamstrung the entire federal government from being able to respond to the crisis. They bend uh, to the pressure of Niemeyer and the Bank of England, um, and that being a Labor government, it wasn't the case that all the states were on board. Um, as you mentioned, Jack Lang, uh, there was a, a, a bitter fight, I understand, uh, with what Jack, Jack Lang did in response. Oh, no doubt. Well, it, it, it's, it's important to understand the distinction between the state governments and the federal government. And the federal government was completely bound to the, uh, the, the austerity doctrine of the Bank of England and Nehemiah, whereas the state government still had individual control over their own finances. And Jack Lang, he, in his eyes, there, there's this great quote where he's like, I, I, why should, why should uh, f- face with the reality of, of limbless war veterans, why should, why should the widows and orphans go without their pension payments so British bondholders could be paid in full? And so he, what he did was absolutely, it was akin to a akin to financial revolution in regards to uh, financial affairs with Britain. He defaulted on, uh, on Australia's loan repayments to, to London. And that caused an absolute uproar across both federal government and uh, imperial relations. I mean, I'll just say, Sam, that the, this point about the fact that Australia sacrificed so many lives in World War I uh, in service for king and country, only to walk away having a crippling debt that they were still struggling to pay uh, into the 1930s. Uh, that is, it, blow, it blows my mind. I mean, how can this be the case? You know, it's, is it not enough to sacrifice the blood for an imperial war in Europe, but then to have to still be paying this debt so much later? And it comes to the question and at the heart and soul of government, uh, what Jack Lang was uh, faced with, do, do you support the common good of the people, um, make sure that they have work and uh, you know, a livelihood to feed themselves, or do you pay British bondholders for a war, uh, a war debt? And what was so striking was Britain wouldn't renegotiate. They didn't want to come to the table to reorganise uh, the financing of that, um, egregious as it was. So, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, from there, I mean, this, this whole, sh- whole showdown with Lang, um, tell me about how it, uh, how it went from there. Um, and then um, on to the investigations of the 1937 Banking Commission. What did they find? Yeah, well, just, just a quick point on Lang. So Otto Neymar himself was the agent for the British Treasury who had actually denied Australia's ability to renegotiate its wartime debts. And what made it even more egregious was that England had had millions of pounds of its own foreign debt to America 
refinanced at 3%, whilst at the same time they were outright refusing to extend those concessions to Australia. I, I, I guess that's uh, evident of the hypocrisy of uh, colonial relations. <laughs> but but Lang himself, uh, you know, he was being chased in the, in the high court because the under the Bruce Page government, the federal government was actually contractually obligated to, to pay London the, were contractually obligated to support the state's debts. So the, even though this New South Wales had defaulted on these London loans, the, the, the federal government was actually paying London on behalf of New South Wales' default. And uh, eventually Lang's, uh, you know, in 1932, Australia was actually on the brink of civil war. But it, it actually, it never came down to that because what happened was the British colonial office actually utilised the powers of the governor general. And on, in 1932, Lang was actually dismissed from office. And with, with Lang ousted, they, they, they bring in a guy called Bertram Stevens, who basically be, begins repayments on the London loans and basically reverses all Lang's policies entirely. And so that's just a, another system where the, uh, the colonial mechanisms are able to ensure mo uh, monetary uh, control over Australia. But the, at, at this point, the, the, the monetary devastations of the Great Depression was so severe that there was there was unbelievable interest that Australia was littered with, with hundreds of people discussing economic policy and just looking at the devastation of the Great Depression. So Sam, after Lang's dismissal, uh, obviously the Labor Party went into major disarray, but out of that came a renewed call for stronger powers for the Commonwealth Bank and the 1937 Royal Commission into banking. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, because the, uh, the, the effects of the, the Great Depression were so obvious and so visible, Australia just had become littered with hundreds of economics, uh, economists and people discussing monetary policy, and private banking had been seen as the real source of, all of, all of, of the majority of the, the devastation being faced by the community. And so one of the major pushes within the Labor Party was for the nationalisation of all private banking. And this eventually became a Labor Party policy of, of the, in the Federal Labor Caucus. And in, in the 1937 report, uh, that the central, they, they argued for stronger powers for the, uh, for the central banking functions of the Commonwealth Bank. However, nationalization of the banking wasn't actually promoted in that report, which is why Ben Chifley himself wrote a dissenting report where he argued for the, <laughs> for the full nationalization of all private banking which later he, um, he attempts in 1945 with the, uh, the Banking Act of 1945 and 1947, which was really, that, 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 that struck fear into the heart of the banking system in Australia, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understand, though, that Lyons and Menzies' uh, government uh, did not act on any of the recommendations of that report. No, not at all. But it, it, it wasn't until when, when Curtin and Chifley came to power that's when the, the and I, I say this in the battle for the bank, this is when they, they are able to actually rescue the bank out of the hands of British finance and re restore it from, Commonwealth, from the Commonwealth Bank from the, the clutches of the bank board and place authority back into the hands of the governor who then, who, who then utilised the Commonwealth Bank to, to fund Australia's effort during World War II. And it, 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 was because, it was because of the Second World War, it was under the National Security Economic Wartime Regulations that they were able to actually reform the bank and, and, and use it to fund Australia's effort during the Second World War. Yeah, uh, and that's where we get Ford, Holden, 
the munitions uh, under Essington Lewis's directorship, uh, an incredible transformation in our economy, uh, which are, in a sense set us up as a manufacturing powerhouse. Um, in many of, a lot of our material, we look at that period as, in a sense, the, the beginning of the modern uh, complex manufacturing base of Australia, the setting up of that. Um, what's striking, though, is also uh, Curtin and Chifley uh, re reverted the bank back to its original single governor uh, directive, and um, it went back to its original form in many ways. Yeah, well, to, to, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a restoration back into the, uh, the design which Sir Denison Miller himself had campaigned. And what was the benefit of that is they were able to utilize the bank and utilize the credit creation powers in a method which actually expanded the, uh, the physical uh, capacities of the Australian economy. And so under institutions such as the Industrial Finance Department, you do get the uh, munitions and all sorts of reorganization of, of uh, basically granting Australia the powers to the capacity to, to fight World War II. And then afterwards, it, so Dennis Miller himself said that whatever the, the Australian people can envision and will loyally support, that can be done. They start using it for all sorts of manner of infrastructure projects and basically provide the finance to develop Australia post-World War II. And I think uh, uh, a friend of mine in the US was doing a bit of history uh, re research into this period and he said, um, you know, General Douglas MacArthur, when he came to the Pacific to fight the Japanese uh, in World War II, his greatest shock of the war was seeing how unprepared Australia was. But the economic miracle of 1942 to 45, um, uh, uh, he was saying that by the end of the war, uh, Douglas MacArthur was being supplied uh, by Australia 70% of the manufactured and uh, logistical needs of his forces in the Pacific were coming from Australia and not the US. Uh, so it just shows that in a very short period of time, um, you can switch gears, you can switch the economic uh, structures such that you can get real development and real production up in a hurry, which I, we definitely and certainly need now. So, Sam, I want to jump across now to talking about the dark and shadowy influences uh, on sovereign nations like Australia through this period and up till today. But one of the points I think is really worth uh, taking from this part of Australia's history and legacy is just how much of a battle it is, as you know, the title of your documentary, The Battle for the Bank. This was uh, uh, such a threat that they were prepared to sack uh, state leaders like Lang, they uh, destroyed farmers through uh, exorbitant bank fees. They crippled the Commonwealth Bank. This was economic warfare. Uh, and it's important for every Australian to, to, to know that history, and I can see the significance of it because we're in the same battle today. Uh, with, you know, are we going uh, to take back the reins of our banking system off this private money power? And on that note, tell us about... The Bank for International Settlements, um, some of the figures you uh, mentioned earlier uh, were part of this uh, international cabal of central banks. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, it was during the heart of the Great Depression in the 1930s that the Bank of International Settlements actually gets established. It was a brainchild of a guy from the Bank of England called Sir Montague Norman, among a bunch of other shadowy actors. But the, the, the bank itself was to basically be the nexus for this globalised monetary power and basically today all the world's central bankers get together and they gather and they discuss monetary policy but it, its real agenda 
is basically the centralization of all monetary policy under a single institution. And it itself is trying to serve as this global nexus to, to, to coordinate this, this takeover. And it, it was institutions such as the Commonwealth Bank, when it was acting under the form of a governor and in the, in the national interest, that are direct threats to this system of globalized monetary uh, dictatorship. And the, the, the BIS itself, even though it was established all the way in the 1930s, it survived the Bretton Woods Conference. And today it's still operating out, out of Basel, Switzerland. And it, it today is it's still attempting to, to merge the world's economies together into a single globalized system. And economic sovereignty of nations is a direct threat to this, uh, to this global agenda. Hmm. That's right. In the uh, 1944 New uh, Bretton Woods Conference, then uh, one of the uh, actions that Franklin Roosevelt intended to take was to shut the BIS down. But unfortunately, Roosevelt dies and it didn't get shut down. And as, as you said, Sam, it's still there today. And as we've uh, uh, exposed in a lot of, of our research documentation reports, they have been a champion of this consolidation of financial power through pushes for cashless society, through the push for uh, bail-in, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, uh, because that's one of the significant campaigns and fights that we're waging today to stop bail-in and, and cash restriction policies. Um, but there was... So the, so the Bank for International Settlements continues through this period, and then we come into the... The, the great upheaval of the 70s. And uh, you identify one of the most important moments in history that people need to know is 1971, the ending of the Bretton Woods Agreement and the, uh, the removal of the US dollar pegged to gold. So uh, tell us about the 70s, looking at what happened in Australia, the banking system and globally. Yeah, well, the, the, the 70s were an absolutely massive time in Australian uh, uh, monetary history and sovereignty, because what happened was Australia was faced with this massive foreign investment coming through after World War II, especially in the mineral sector, that the majority of the Australian minerals project were owned by foreign interests. And in this environment, Whitlam himself had, had started pushing the idea of buying back the farm. And so if Australia actually had an original Commonwealth Bank under Sir Dennis and Miller, the, the original Commonwealth Bank was the exact type of institution that could have provided the finance to buy back these assets from, from foreign hands. But what, what actually occurred was that because the bank was no longer the institution of Curtin and Chifley, as it had been taken over by the Menzies legislation and become the Reserve Bank and become a, under the bank board again, that once again, that Australia no longer had a sovereign monetary system. Rather, the Reserve Bank in our monetary system was actually serving foreign interests. And I talk about this extensively in the film. Who does the Reserve Bank actually serve? Is it the Australian people or is it the global, <laughs> global system? And when, when, these, when Whitlam almost became successful in sort of buying back the farm, that's when uh, foreign policy really becomes... And the Governor-General system, again... Gets, gets brought out of the shadows and comes into light. And that's when they, uh, you know, uh, Governor General Kerr dismisses Whitlam. And I, I show in the film that speech where he's like, well, may we say God save the Queen because nothing will save the Governor General. It truly was. It was a, it was, it was a, it was a bloodless coup d'etat of Australian democracy. And I think the palace letters today are just a, a, another reminder that we, we always have the, uh, the colonial system behind Australia's elected leaders 
directing us in the direction that they uh, that they permit. Yeah, absolutely. The release of the palace letters after all these decades, uh, we covered in our citizens' report um, uh, this week as well. Uh, the fact is that. Yes, the palace was totally up to speed on every decision and every plot and plan and consideration going into that, de- that fateful decision in 75. So, um, no, again, it shows the flexing of the imperial forces and the monetary forces when it came to r- raw materials and national ownership. Uh, you know, that's when this hidden hand of finance really uh, pops out of the shadows, as you quite... Uh, eloquently put it in your uh, in the doco so um look uh, this this evolves eventually this speculation from the 70s through the 80s the 87 crisis of the markets but then uh the decision uh well throughout this period to deregulate banks um you come to the 90s where finally um under ironically a labor government uh the decision is made to fully sell the Commonwealth Bank and remove all activity from the economy from, as a public government institution. Um, so what, what kind of uh, observations from that period did you want, uh, do you have, uh, Sam? Well, it was truly bank, banking just evolved into this wild west. You know, the banking system became some of the most profitable institutions in the country where you had complete a complete lack of regulations and all the trading markets. And that's where you get the rise of these uh, credit line bandits such as Christopher Skates. And ba- basically the, the banking system just, just grew out of control. And when, when, when Keating decided to, to privatise the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, that was just the last nail in the coffin of his, any government involvement in the banking sector. So, uh, Sam, what are your observations and comments on the global financial crisis? Well, I, I, I truly believe that we're, it, it hasn't ended and none of the problems which originally caused the first crisis have, have been solved. And so uh, re- realistically, we're heading towards a new global financial crisis, which is only just around the corner. And at the moment, global central banks are, uh, have embarked on unprecedented amounts of monetary expansion and quantitative easing, but mm-hmm. they're doing it in a method which rather than promoting the industrial capabilities and the welfare of, of the people, it's, ra- it's more focused on propping up the stock markets and their version of stability. To, to me, many, many of the, the, the policies being pushed by the Bank of International Settlements isn't about helping the people. It's rather, it's about entrenching the, the too big to fail banks and the large global central banks in their system. And so to, to me, I, I've said it multiple times that the, 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 under, the underlying intent of the Bank of International Settlements is to establish a one-world currency alongside a global government. And th- through their institutions, such as the Financial Stability Board, they, they, they've gone around the world to individual nation-states, preparing them both legally and structurally for the new globalist architecture. And th- this isn't a system which uh, guarantees the, uh, the liberty and sovereignty of man. Rather, it, 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 it's basically a new form of uh, international feudalism where these global central banks and the, the international money power is the ones running and controlling the societies where everyone else is basically a <laughs> indentured, uh, indentured servant in, in, in service to their system. And to, to me, I, I'm totally opposed. I think that's absolutely insane. And that's why at, at the end of the documentary, I advocate that we should restore the national bank. We should go back to a national banking system and basically tell these uh, international bankers to, you know, to, to stuff off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this is uh, the the fight around bail-in is exemplary of this. Uh, we saw what happened in Cyprus in 2013, the confiscation of savings deposits uh, to rescue two banks there on orders from the European Central Bank. Um, the original idea of bail-in comes from Wall Street, yet it's never been discussed openly or publicly or there's never been a consultation. And what's so striking is these laws, these ideas come from international... The, 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 the Bank for International Settlements, come, as you said, Sam, comes out and says to nations, you must do this, you, sh you have to follow these rules of international banking best practice. Uh, and then they have the Financial Stability Board that does these reports. And uh, it was in 2013-14 we did a, a, an initial investigation into uh, what kind of laws were being prepared for Australia. And for the average Joe out there to find that material, uh, you really don't have, to, you need to not have a life because you've got to go into uh, very boring bank reports and, and, and sift through so much jargon to find, you know, these, these statements, uh, which we did here. Um, and we discovered that bail-in legislation was in train coming from the Bank for International Settlements and uh, that led to a mobilisation which... Uh, and then, you know, fast forward to 2017, 2018, they bring legislation to Parliament. Now, what's so striking is with the bail-in law that passed here, uh, which you mentioned uh, quite a bit at the end of the documentary, the Financial Sector Legislation Amendment Crisis Resolution and Other Measures Bill 2018, long name, uh, they, um, they put this through and in our mobilising and campaigning to stop it passing, we found that many politicians in Canberra didn't even know that it passed, that they didn't even know what was in it. Um, those people we elected were not... It didn't come organically from Australians. And so you have this actual proof that laws are being written or drawn up by the back rooms in consultation with international forces. That's not sovereignty. Um, and again with the cash ban, we see again with uh, the International Monetary Fund's reports stating that they need, they want to phase out cash for ultimately negative interest rates and, uh, you know, other Orwellian, uh, nightmarish Wellsian type uh, scenarios uh, for the future. So, uh, I mean, my question, uh, Sam, is we are at a point, turning point. What should we do? What is... Uh, what what uh, our policy proposals do you think we should pursue for, further forward? Well, to me, to, to me, the most important thing is monetary sovereignty. And when the world's central banks now are acting so insanely, I think there's never been a better time to, to restore to Australia control over monetary policy, back to the government, back to the people and the representatives of the people. So and it, it's not a radical proposal. Australia has had systems in the past. The original Commonwealth Bank under Sir Dennis Miller and the Commonwealth Bank under Ben Chifley and Curtin have both had control over the monetary system. So it's not like this is absolutely insane. What is insane is the global central banks trying to set up a one world currency. And to, to me, I think we should be getting out there. People should be chatting to their neighbours and telling everyone that, hey, government should be involved in the banking sector. 
the bankers shouldn't be allowed to run free and do what they like. <laughs> Banks are different to normal people. So, <laughs> so to, to, to me, I'm a massive fan of national banking. I, I truly think once we, we've solved the national banking crisis, then we can look at the, uh, the, the others, the forms of, of tyranny and Orwellian uh, uh, dictatorship that we're facing. But from the heart of it all, control over monetary policy and national sovereignty has to be a number one. Absolutely. Uh, we uh, have just concluded uh, calling on every Australian to make submissions to the trade and investment inquiry currently underway. Looking at this question of Australia's reliance on foreign money uh, and foreign markets for our manufactured product and how significant and, and how we can overcome these challenges with a public credit bank. Um, we will be putting uh, out uh, in the coming days a, uh, the a revised version of legislation for a national bank. We know that there are people in our parliament who support it, but without what you're saying, Sam, a groundswell of um, you know, uh, fired-up Australians to demand it, it ain't going to happen. It has to be pushed from the people. Uh, this needs to be a discussion, as you said, with the neighbours. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a raft of things people can do. I mean, for those watching, I really strongly suggest get on our website, the Citizens Party website. We have a petition there for a national public bank, which we'll submit to the government. But go beyond that. Write, write your own submissions. Write letters to MPs. Um, and uh, share this with everyone um, who you can. Uh, Sam Hansen's uh, documentary. So, Sam, where can uh, people find this DVD? Uh, yeah, the DVDs, are, uh, uh, the, the film itself is free to watch on YouTube, uh, just the Battle of the Bank on YouTube. And uh, on my website, thectsnews.com, I, ha I have a bunch of articles at my DVD as well. So. Great. <laughs> well, Sam, thanks for joining us today. It's, uh, we, we didn't quite uh, go through the entire two-hour, 40-minute documentary, but we got to sink our teeth into quite a bit of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you and look forward to catching up again in future. A massive thanks for having me, man. Thanks, Sam. And thanks for joining us. Uh, call 1-800-636-432 if you would like uh, more information. Um, uh, check out the comments below uh, and the information for Sam's details. Uh, and join us next time on Citizens Insight.